Chapter One of the Red Room. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Peck. The Red Room by August Strindberg. Translated by Ellie Schlissner. Chapter One A Bird's Eye View of Stockholm. It was an evening in the beginning of May. The little garden on Moses Height, on the south side of the town, had not yet been thrown open to the public, and the flower beds were still unturned. The snowdrops had worked through the accumulations of last year's dead leaves, and were on the point of closing their short career, and making room for the crocuses, which had found shelter under a barren pear tree. The elder was waiting for a southerly wind before bursting into bloom but the tightly closed buds of the limes still offered cover for love-making to the chaffinches, busily employed in building their lichen-covered nest between trunk and branch. No human foot had trod the gravel path since last winter's snow had melted, and the free and easy life of beasts and flowers was left undisturbed. The sparrows industriously collected all manner of rubbish and stowed it away under the tiles of the navigation school, they burdened themselves with scraps of the rocket cases of last autumn's fireworks, and picked the straw covers off the young trees transplanted from the nursery in the deer park only a year ago. Nothing escaped them. They discovered shreds of muslin in the summer arbors. The splintered leg of a seat supplied them with tufts of hair left on the battlefield by dogs which had not been fighting there since Josephine's day. What a life it was! The sun was standing over the Lilia home, throwing sheaves of rays towards the east. The rays pierced the calms of smoke at Bergson, flashed across the Ritterford, climbed to the cross of the Ritterholm's church, flung themselves onto the steep roof of the German church opposite, toyed with the bunting displayed by the boats on the pontoon bridge, sparkled in the windows of the chief custom house, illuminated the woods of the lighting island, and died away in a rosy cloud far, far away in the distance where the sea was. And from thence the wind came, and traveled back by the same way, over Vaxholm, past the fortress, past the custom house, and along Sickler Island, forcing its way in behind the Hasterholm, glancing at the summer resorts, then out again and on, on to the hospital Danakin. There it took fright, and dashed away in a headlong career along the southern shore, noticing the smell of coal, tar, and fish oil came dead against the city quay, rushed up to the Moses height, and swept into the garden, and buffeted against the wall. The wall was opened by a maidservant, who, at the very moment, was engaged in peeling off the paper pasted over the chinks of the double windows. A terrible smell of dripping, beer drags, pine needles, and sawdust poured out, and was carried away by the wind, while the maid stood breathing the fresh air through her nostrils. The wind plucked the cotton wool, strewn with barberry berries, tinsel, and rose leaves from the space between the windows, and danced it along the paths, joined by sparrows and chaffinches, who saw here the solution of their greater part of their housing problem. Meanwhile, the maid continued her work at the double windows. In a few minutes, the door leading from the restaurant stood open, and a man, well but plainly dressed, stepped out into the garden. There was nothing striking about his face beyond a slight expression of care and worry. 
which disappeared as soon as he had emerged from the stuffy room and caught sight of the wide horizon. He turned to the side from whence the wind came, opened his overcoat, and repeatedly drew a deep breath, which seemed to relieve his heart and lungs. Then he began to stroll up and down the barrier, which separated the garden from the cliffs in the direction of the sea. Far below him lay the noisy, reawakening town. The steam cranes whirred in the harbor. The iron bars rattled in the iron weighing machine. The whistles of the lock-keeper shrilled. The steamers at the pontoon bridge smoked. The omnibuses rumbled over the uneven paving stones. Noise and uproar in the fish market. Sails and flags on the water outside the screams of the seagulls, bugle calls from the dockyard, the turning out of the guard, the clattering of the wooden shoes of the working men. All this produced an impression of life and bustle, which seemed to rouse the young man's energy. His face assumed an expression of defiance, cheerfulness, and resolution, and, as he leaned over the barrier and looked at the town below, he seemed to be watching an enemy. His nostrils expanded, his eyes flashed, and he raised his clenched fist as if he were challenging or threatening the poor town. The bells of St. Catherine's chimed seven. The splenetic treble of St. Mary seconded. The basses of the great church and the German church joined in, and soon the air was vibrating with the sound made by the seven bells of the town. Then, one after the other, relapsed into silence, until far away in the distance only the last one of them could be heard, singing its peaceful, even song. It had a higher note, a purer tone, and a quicker tempo than the others. Yes, it had. He listened and wondered whence the sound came, for it seemed to stir up vague memories in him. All of a sudden his face relaxed, and his features expressed the misery of a forsaken child, and he was forsaken. His father and mother were lying in the churchyard of St. Clara's, from whence the bell could still be heard. And he was a child. He still believed in everything, truth and fairy tales alike. The bell of St. Clara's went silent, and the sound of footsteps on the gravel path roused him from his reverie. A short man with side whiskers came towards him from the veranda. He wore spectacles, apparently more for the sake of protecting his glances than his eyes, and his malicious mouth was generally twisted into a kindly, almost benevolent expression. He was dressed in a neat overcoat with defective buttons, a somewhat battered hat, and trousers hoisted at half-mass. His walk indicated assurance as well as timidity. His whole appearance was so indefinite that it was impossible to guess at his age or social position. He might just as well have been an artisan as a government official. His age was anything between twenty-nine and forty-five years. He was obviously flattered to find himself in the company of the man whom he come to meet, for he raised his bulging hat with unusual ceremony and smiled his kindest smile. "'I hope you haven't been waiting, Assessor.' "'Not for a second. It's only just struck seven. Thank you for coming. I must confess this meeting is of the greatest importance to me. I might almost say it concerns my whole future, Mr. Struve. Bless me. Do you mean it? Mr. Struve blinked. He had come to drink a glass of toddy, 
and was very little inclined for a serious conversation. He had his reasons for that. "'We shall be more undisturbed if we have our toddy outside, if you don't mind,' continued the assessor. Mr. Struve stroked his right whisker, put his hat carefully on his head, and thanked the assessor for his invitation, but he looked uneasy. "'To begin with, I must ask you to drop the assessor,' began the young man. "'I've never been more than a regular assistant, and I cease to be even that from today. I'm Mr. Falk, nothing else.' "'What?' Mr. Struve looked as if he had lost a distinguished friend, but he kept his temper. "'You're a man with liberal tendencies.' Mr. Struve tried to explain himself, but Falk continued. "'I ask you to meet me here in your character of contributor to the liberal red cap.' "'Good heavens! I'm such a very unimportant contributor.' "'I've read your thundering articles on the working man's question and all other questions which nearly concern us. We're in the year three in Roman figures, for it is now the third year of the new Parliament.' and soon our hopes will have become realities. I've read your excellent biographies of our leading politicians in The Peasant's Friend, the lives of those men of the people who have at last been allowed to voice what oppressed them for so long. You're a man of progress, and I've a great respect for you. Struve, whose eyes had grown dull, instead of kindling at the fervent words, seized with pleasure the proffered safety valve. I must admit, he said eagerly, that I am immensely pleased to find myself appreciated by a young, and, I must say it, excellent man like you, assessor. But, on the other hand, why talk of such grave, not to say sad things, when we're sitting here in the lap of nature, on the first day of spring, while all the buds are bursting, and the sun is pouring his warmth on the whole creation? Let's snap our fingers at care, and drink our glass in peace. Excuse me, I believe I'm your senior, and I venture to propose, therefore. Falk, who like a flint had gone out in search of steel, realized that he had struck wood. He accepted the proposal without eagerness, and the new brothers sat side by side, and all they had to tell each other was the disappointment expressed in their faces. I mentioned a little while ago, Falk resumed, that I've broken today with my past life and thrown up my career as a government employee. I'll only add that I intend taking up literature. Literature? Good heavens, why? Oh, but that is a pity. It isn't, but I want you to tell me how to set about finding work. Hmm, that's really difficult to say. The profession is crowded with so many people of all sorts, but you mustn't think of it. It really is a pity to spoil your career. The literary profession is a bad one. Struve looked sorry, but he could not hide a certain satisfaction at having met a friend in misfortune. But tell me, he continued, why are you throwing up a career which promises a man honors as well as influence? Honors to those who have usurped the power, and influence to the most unscrupulous. Stuff! It isn't as bad as all that. Isn't it? Well, then I must speak more plainly. I'll show you the inner working of one of the six departments for which I had put down. The first five I left at once for the very simple reason that there was no room for me. 
Whenever I went and asked whether there was anything for me to do, I was told no, and I never saw anybody doing anything, and that was in the busy departments, like the Committee on Brandy Distilleries, the Direct Taxation Office, and the Board of Administration of Employees' Pensions. But when I noticed the swarming crowd of officials, the idea struck me that the department which had to pay out all the salaries must surely be very busy indeed. I therefore put my name down for the Board of Payment of Employees' Salaries. And did you go there? asked Struve, beginning to feel interested. Yes, I shall never forget the great impression made on me by my visit to this thoroughly well-organized department. I went there at eleven o'clock one morning, because this is supposed to be the time when the office is open. In the waiting room I found two young messengers sprawling on a table, on their stomachs, reading the Fatherland. The Fatherland? Struve, who had up to the present been feeding the sparrows with sugar, pricked up his ears. Yes, I said, good morning. A feeble wrangling of the gentlemen's backs indicated that they accepted my good morning, without any decided displeasure. One of them even went to the length of waggling the heel of his right foot, which might have been intended as a substitute for a handshake. I asked whether either of the gentlemen were disengaged and could show me the offices. Both of them declared that they were unable to do so because their orders were not to leave the waiting room. I inquired whether there were any other messengers. Yes, there were others, but the chief messenger was away on a holiday. The first messenger was on leave. The second was not on duty. The third had gone to the post. The fourth was ill. The fifth had gone to fetch some drinking water. The sixth was in the yard, where he remained all day long. Moreover, no official ever arrived before one o'clock. This was a hint to me that my early, inconvenient visit was not good form, and at the same time a reminder that the messengers also were government employees. But when I stated that I was firmly resolved on seeing the offices so as to gain an idea of the division of labor in so important and comprehensive a department, the younger of the two consented to come with me. When he opened the door I had a magnificent view of a suite of sixteen rooms of various sizes. There must be work here, I thought, congratulating myself on my happy idea of coming. The crackling of sixteen birchwood fires in sixteen tiled stoves interrupted, in the pleasantest manner, the solitude of the place. Struve, who had become more and more interested, fumbled for a pencil between the material and lining of his waistcoat, and wrote sixteen on his left cuff. This is the adjunct's room, explained the messenger. I see. Are there many adjuncts in this department? I asked. Oh, yes, more than enough. What do they do all day long? Oh, they write, of course, a little. He was speaking familiarly, so that I thought it time to interrupt him. After wandering through the copyists, the notaries, the clerks, the controllers and his secretaries, the revisers and his secretaries, the public prosecutors, the registrar of exchequers, the master of the rolls and the librarians, the treasurers, the cashiers, the procurators, the protonotaries, the keeper of the minutes, 
the actuaries, the keeper of the records, the secretaries, the first clerks, and the head of the department's rooms, we came to a door which bore in gilt letters the words, The President. I was going to open the door, but the messenger stopped me, genuinely uneasy. He seized my arm and whispered, Shush! Is he asleep? I asked, my thoughts busy with an old rumor. For God's sakes, be quiet, the messenger replied. No one may enter here unless the President rings the bell. Does he often ring? I asked. No, I've never heard him ringing in my time, and I've been here twelve months. He was again inclined to be familiar, so I said no more. About noon the adjuncts began to arrive, and to my amazement I found in them nothing but old friends from the Committee on Brandy Distilleries and the Board of Administration of Employees' Pensions. My amazement grew when the register from the Inland Revenue Office strolled into the actuary's room and made himself as comfortable in his easy chair as he used to do in the Inland Revenue Office. I took one of the young men aside and asked him whether it would not be advisable for me to call on the President. Shush! was his mysterious reply while he took me into room number eight. Again this mysterious shush! The room which we had just entered was quite as dark as the rest of them, but it was much dirtier. The horsehair stuffing was bursting through the leather covering of the furniture. Thick dust lay on the writing table. By the side of an inkstand, in which the ink had dried long ago, lay an unused stick of sealing wax, with the former owner's name marked on it in Anglo-Saxon letters. In addition, there was a pair of paper shears, whose blades were held together by rust a date-rack which had not been turned since midsummer five years ago, a state directory five years old, a sheet of blotting paper with Julius Caesar, Julius Caesar, Julius Caesar written all over it, a hundred times at least, alternating with as many Father Noahs. This is the office of the Master of the Rolls. We shall be undisturbed here, said my friend. Doesn't the Master of the Rolls come here then? I asked. He hasn't been here these five years, and now he's ashamed to turn up. But who does his work? The librarian. But what is his work in a department like the Board of Payment of Employees' Salaries? The messengers sort the three seats, chronologically and alphabetically, and send them to the bookbinders. The librarian supervises their being placed on shelves, specially adapted for the purpose. The conversation now seemed to amuse Struve. He scribbled a word every now and then on his cuff, and, as Falk paused, he thought it incumbent on him to ask an important question. But how did the master of the rolls get his salary? It was sent to his private address. Wasn't that simple enough? However, my young friend advised me to present myself to the actuary, and to ask him to introduce me to the other employees, who were now dropping in to poke the fires in their tiled stoves, and to enjoy the last glimmer of the glowing wood. My friend told me that the actuary was an influential and good-natured individual, very susceptible to little courtesies. I, who had come across him in his character as registrar of the exchequer, had formed a different opinion of him, but believing that my friend knew better, I went to see him. The redoubtable actuary sat in a capacious easy chair, with his feet on a reindeer skin. 
he was engaged in seasoning a real maraschon pipe sewn up in soft leather so as not to appear idle he was glancing at yesterday's post acquainting himself in this way with the wishes of the government my entrance seemed to annoy him he pushed his spectacles on to his bald head hiding his right eye behind the edge of the newspaper he shot a conical bullet at me with the left i proffered my request he took the mouthpiece of his meerschaum into his right hand and examined it to find out how far he had covered it the dreadful silence which followed confirmed my apprehensions he cleared his throat there was a loud hissing noise in the heap of glowing coal then he remembered the newspaper and continued his perusal of it i judged it wise to repeat my request in a different form he lost his temper what the devil do you want what are you doing in my room can't i have peace in my own quarters what get out get out get out sir i say can't you see that i'm busy go to the proto-notary if you want anything don't come here bothering me i went to the proto-notary the committee of supplies was sitting it had been sitting for three weeks already the proto-notary was in the chair and three clerks were keeping the minutes the samples sent in by the purveyors lay scattered about on the tables around which all disengaged clerks copyists and notaries were assembled in spite of much diversity of opinion it had been agreed upon to order twenty reams of lacebo paper and after repeatedly testing their cutty capacity the purchase of forty-eight pairs of grand torp scissors which had been awarded a prize had been decided on the actuary held twenty-five shares in this concern the test writing with the steel nibs had taken a whole week and the minutes concerning it had taken up two reams of paper it was now the turn of the penknives and the committee was intent on testing them on the leaves of the black table i propose ordering sheffield double blades number four without a corkscrew said the proto-notary cutting a splinter off the table large enough to light a fire with what does the first notary say he said the first notary who had cupped too deeply into the table had come across a nail and damaged an eskill stuna number two with three blades suggested buying the latter after everybody had given his opinion and alleged reasons for holding it adding practical tests the chairman suggested buying two gross of sheffield's but the first notary protested and delivered a long speech which was taken down on record copied out twice registered sorted alphabetically and chronologically bound and placed by the messenger under the librarian's supervision on a specially adapted shelf this protest displayed a warm patriotic feeling its principal object was the demonstration of the necessity of encouraging home industries but this being equivalent to a charge brought against the government seeing that it was brought against one of its employees the proto-notary felt it his duty to meet it he started with a historical digression on the origin of the discount on manufactured goods at the word discount all the adjuncts pricked up their ears the proto-notary touched on the economic developments of the country during the last twenty years and went into such minute details that the clock on the Ritterholm's church struck two before he had arrived at his subject at the fatal stroke of the clock the whole assembly rushed from their places as if a fire had broken out when i asked a colleague what it all meant 
the old notary who had heard my question replied the primary duty of a government employee is punctuality sir at two minutes past two not a soul was left in one of the rooms we shall have a hot day to-morrow whispered a colleague as we went downstairs what in the name of fortune is going to happen i asked uneasily lead pencils he replied there were hot days in store for us sealing wax envelopes paper knives blotting paper string still it might all be allowed to pass for every one was occupied but a day came when there was nothing to do i took my courage in my hands and asked for work i was given seven reams of paper for making fair copies at home a feat by which i should deserve well of my country i did my work in a very short time but instead of receiving appreciation and encouragement i was treated with suspicion industrious people were not in favor since then i've had no work i'll spare you the tedious recital of a year's humiliations the countless taunts the endless bitterness everything which appeared small and ridiculous to me was treated with grave solemnity and everything which i considered great and praiseworthy was scoffed at the people were called the mob and their only use was to be shot at by the army if occasion should arise the new form of government was openly reviled and the peasants were called traitors as a footnote it should be noted since the great reorganization of the public offices this description is no longer true to life falk continued i had to listen to this sort of thing for seven months they began to suspect me because i didn't join in their laughter and challenged me next time the opposition dogs were attacked i exploded and made a speech the result of which was that they knew where i stood and that i was henceforth impossible and now i shall do what so many other shipwrecks have done i shall throw myself into the arms of literature struve who seemed dissatisfied with the truncated ending put the pencil back sipped his toddy and looked absent-minded nevertheless he thought he ought to say something my dear fellow he remarked at last you haven't yet learned the art of living you will find out how difficult it is to earn bread and butter and how it gradually becomes the main interest one works to eat and eats to be able to work believe me who have wife and child that i know what i'm talking about you must cut your coat according to your cloth you see according to your cloth and you've no idea what the position of a writer is he stands outside society his punishment for aspiring to stand above it falk replied moreover i detest society for it is not founded on a voluntary basis it's a web of lies i renounce it with pleasure it's beginning to grow chilly said struve yes shall we go perhaps we better the flame of conversation had flickered out meanwhile the sun had set the half-moon had risen and hung over the fields to the north of the town star after star struggled with the daylight which still lingered in the sky the gas lamps were being lighted in the town the noise and uproar was beginning to die away falk and struve walked together in the direction of the north talking of commerce navigation the crafts everything in fact which did not interest them finally to each other's relief they parted 
Falk strolled down River Street towards the dockyard, his brain pregnant with new thoughts. He felt like a bird which had flown against a windowpane and now lay bruised on the ground at the very moment when it had spread its wings to fly towards freedom. He sat down on a seat, listening to the splashing of the waves. A light breeze had sprung up and rustled through the flowering maple trees, and the faint light of the half-moon shone on the black water. Twenty, thirty boats lay moored on the quay. They tore at their chains for a moment, raised their heads one after the other, and dived down again underneath the water. Wind and waves seemed to drive them onward. They made little runs towards the bridge like a pack of hounds, but the chain held them in leash and left them kicking and stamping as if they were eager to break their loose. He remained in his seat till midnight. The wind fell asleep. The waves went to rest. The fettered boats ceased tugging at their chains. The maples stopped rustling, and the dew was beginning to fall. Then he rose and strolled home, dreaming to his lonely attic in the northeastern part of the town. That is what young Falk did. But old Struve, who on the same day had become a member of the staff of the Grey Bonnet, because the red cap had sacked him, went home and wrote an article for the notorious People's Flag, on the board of payment of employees' salaries, four columns at five crowns a column. End of chapter 1